Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Nate Whedon, and today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under your feet, turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. If there's anybody here that doesn't know me, I'm Tom Butler. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this is one of these passages that we're going to look at this morning that you don't have to be a churchgoer to know, and you've probably quoted before. But you know, in our American culture, there's a very common mantra that is from our founding fathers And that is about personal freedom, personal autonomy, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Don't tell me what to do. I'm an American, right? There's a very strong individualistic sense about us. We routinely hear phrases like live and let live. It's America. You can do whatever you want to do. Stay in your own lane. means leave me alone. I'll do what I want to do. Or the all-too-familiar now, you do you. And I'm fully aware that I'm too old to say that, but, you know, I hear it being said. Now, don't get me wrong. I I love freedom. We're coming up on the 4th of July, and we're celebrating this this amazing experiment in, in freedom and liberty that has allowed us to explore and discover and to do wonderful things. And uh, I love the 4th of July where we get to come together and we get to celebrate what unites us in a very positive way. There has been a lot of good that's come out of that freedom. I love being here today and the fact that I don't have to worry that the authorities are going to come in and arrest us because they don't like what we're saying. Freedom is and can be a great thing, but freedom is only wonderful and productive when it's exercised under righteous authority. We often think of freedom as the lack of authority, being free to do whatever you want. There's no authority that's guiding what it is that I'm going to be doing. But freedom without authority is anarchy, everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. And that can lead to very great darkness. That's why there must be both liberty, which is freedom, 
and justice, which is authority. So you may be asking, you know, what in the world does this have to do with our text today? And I think it is important for us to identify what, what is called confirmation bias. We've talked about that before. I mean, we live in this country where this is just so assumed that when we read verses like this, you know, don't judge others, we automatically, if we don't stop and think, interpret it through the lens of the American culture of you do you. And that's, that's not an accurate interpretation. And so I think that we need to, to be aware that we're talking about something different. And this morning, we're going to see how the, the personal autonomy that we've enjoyed in this country and the way that we live our life has caused some to misinterpret this verse and, and to take it in a direction that, that God never read, never meant it to go. You know, when you read, do not judge, you say, well, that's pretty simple, right? It's just don't judge other people. You know, it gets a little complicated, though. If somebody steals your car, or if somebody punches you in the nose, or someone cuts you off in traffic, to stand by and say, I'm not going to judge that person. Because when somebody steals your car, you may be tempted to pass judgment on them that they're not a nice person. If somebody comes up and punches you in the nose, you may be tempted to pass judgment and say that they're a vicious beast. If someone cuts you off in traffic, you may be tempted to pass judgment and call them an Iowa State fan. Yeah, see how wrong that is? It's wrong to judge people, right? I, I just couldn't resist. It was either that or Notre Dame. So I figured, that, I figured there were more Iowa State fans here than Notre Dame. So, yeah, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate that. So when the offenses occur, it is hard not to judge. It is hard not to judge other people. So what does it mean, really? What is Jesus getting at here when he's talking about not judging other people? Well, for us to really fully understand what he's saying here in this passage, in this place, we need to see it within the context of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through, right? Because this is a continual flow of thought from chapter 5 all the way through the end of chapter 7, and this is right here in the middle. So we have to understand it in, in that context. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in the Beatitudes has been calling his disciples to a greater righteousness. He says, I have something more for you than what you have known. I want you to be like me. What does that look like? Well, in the Beatitudes, he said, for somebody who has this greater righteousness, this is what they look like. They're meek, they're lowly in spirit, they're humble, they're merciful, they're peacemakers. These are the attributes of somebody who is living a greater righteousness. He says, this is what I want for you. I want your life to be characterized by this greater righteousness. This is the heart that I want for you. And then he moves in and he has a section where he talks about the law and he wants to challenge their thinking. 
about these things where he says, you have heard it said, but I say. You remember that, how he said, this is what you've been taught, but this is what I want you to understand. You've been taught, you know, don't kill somebody. And I tell you that if you're angry at that person, you've committed murder. Don't commit adultery. I say, if you lust after somebody, in your, you have committed adultery in your heart. So he's trying to challenge their thinking to transform not only their hearts, but to transform their minds so that they will think like he thinks. And then he goes on to the practices. And he says, the people who enjoy the greater righteousness, they're generous. They love their enemies. They give well, they pray well, and they fast well. So Jesus is walking through the Sermon on the Mount, taking his disciples from where they were to where he wants them to be, and, and, tr- and truly in the image of Jesus. What does that look like? People that have the heart of Jesus, people that have the mind of Jesus, and people who live their lives in the practices that Jesus did. He says, this is what I want for you. This is this greater righteousness that I have for you. So to this point, his disciples are moving toward that. This means that the whole, you say, well, what is greater righteousness? To be somebody who enjoys great, the greater righteousness means that you're whole and complete spiritually. Okay? A greater righteousness means that you're whole and complete spiritually. It doesn't mean that you've cleaned up your life. I think a lot of people want to go to church and say, I got to get right with God. I got to get my life cleaned up. And that's not what it is. It's not sinning less. It's to be transformed into the image of Jesus and submitting to and enjoying his righteousness. So let's be clear. Sinning less is a byproduct of greater righteousness. It's not the means to it. It's in our nature to want to earn and achieve and to do these things so that God will be happy with us. And yet what Jesus is saying is just the opposite. He's saying that that is the outflowing of a greater righteousness that I have for you. This morning, uh, we're going to be getting into how it is that Jesus is helping his disciples to understand what it means to set themselves aside and to let his righteousness flow through them. And in these verses, we're going to look at three areas of responsibility. The first area is our personal responsibility. The second area is our responsibility to other believers. And the third area of responsibility is our responsibility to the lost. And as you can see on the screen, there are six verses that we're going to look at. The first point is four and a half of those six verses. So it seems like it's kind of heavy loaded to that. And we're going to see as we go through this that this is really the main focus of what Jesus is getting at with them here. So as we look at the area of our personal responsibility, that's in verses 1 through 5a, where it says not to judge. In the, there, there are two different categories. The first is a prohibition of what not to do in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 5a, it talks about the prescription of what to do. So what not to do and what to do. 
So the pro prohibition of what not to, what, what are we not supposed to do? We're not supposed to judge people. And that is in the imperative. Now, Jesus is getting increasingly more intense in his desire for his disciples to understand that. You can see it in his language as he's communicating with them. And so he's saying to them, it is important that you understand that you are not to judge people. Now, in, in these first two verses where it says, don't judge people so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure, there are two words that he's using there, judge and measure. Judge has to do with what, what you would think of a judge passing judgment over somebody, you know, determining what somebody's life is and saying, you are X, you are Y, and making a judgment. That person is a lover of money. That person is a whatever, passing judgment. The measure part of it is, it's a, it's a commercial term. Basically, if you go to the meat counter at any grocery store and Say you want some fresh meat, they put it up on the scale, right? And the scale tells you how much is in there, and then they put in a little brown wrapping, and you get it. You're trusting that that scale is accurate, aren't you? You have no way to know. And it's common back then that they would use faulty scales that would, you know, help the merchant make more money. And so what Jesus is saying is if you are not dealing squarely with other people, they're going to look at you and they're not going to do that just in a practical way. We can see how that happens, right? And so what he's saying here is you can't live like this. You can't be the judge. You can't deal with people the way that people deal with you. You know, being a lover of money is a judgment of character. Making paper airplanes out of $100 bills and flying them into your fire pit is an action. So can I not look at that and say, you know, that's not wise to do. If you're going to, let me give you my one and you can throw that into the fire and give me your 100 and I'll keep that. You know, it's, it's not wrong for us to identify when somebody is doing an action that is harmful or wrong or whatever that's different from passing a judgment over their character. You know, that's God's domain. You may say, so-and-so is a terrible father. You say, well, they, they let their kids run wild and whatever and <laughs> throw rocks at their car and, and write on their, you know, whatever. And you would say, well, those actions maybe could be handled differently. But that's behavior, that's actions, that's not character. We don't have the authority to pass judgment over the character of other people. And what Jesus is saying here, as we heard, I don't know if it's last week or a couple of weeks ago, in the words of Bob Newhart, stop it. He's very adamant to tell them to stop it. That is not your role to make. You can't judge people and call them lazy, selfish, undisciplined, unspiritual. All of these things that you hear, these judgments that we make on image bearers of God, and we do it with ease. And Jesus is saying, that is not your place. That is not your place to be judging other people. And yet it's our natural state, isn't it, to be able to easily see the faults in others and to judge them more harshly 
than our own, right? You can say, you can nod your head. I know that we can't talk to each other, but we get comfortable with the way we live, but as soon as we see somebody that's doing something else, it's very obvious. It's very easy for us to make those judgments. Do you stay awake at night and wonder how to address the shortcomings in someone else? Do you worry that their choices aren't grounded in an adequate understanding of the word? Are you anxious for others? Is your attention and focus directed toward the sins of others? It's easier that way. It's easier for me to look at everybody else and in comparison, in my own justification, feel better about myself and not feel like I need to do anything because, you know, it's just easier that way. And Jesus is saying, you need to stop it. So the question is then, okay, are you saying that I can't call out obvious sins in a brother? Listen to the end. We're going to work all the way through that, okay? Because we do have responsibilities to each other. But what he's talking about here is judging character and making a judgment over a person's life. And only God knows the heart, and God is the only judge. And he's telling them to stop it. That's the prohibition. So the prescription in verses 3 through 5a is what he tells them they really need to be about. And that's going to be the most important or the, the meatiest part of what we're going to talk about this morning. And it says, why do you look, in verse 3, at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye. This is what we are supposed to be doing. I, th I love the imagery of the eye. Can you imagine the scene if somebody came up to you and wanted to talk to you, and they had a stick sticking out of their eye? Y your response would be, go get that taken out. What, what are you doing? Why, why are you talking to me instead of going to the hospital? You have no business doing anything else other than getting that thing out of your eye. It disgusts us. It's gross. And the imagery that he uses here, I think, is purposeful for us to think, well, that would be awful <laughs> if somebody had a big thing sticking out of their eye and you wouldn't want to look at them, you wouldn't want to listen to them, and you wouldn't understand why they would be trying to talk to you. Sorry. <laughs> and so Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, guys, what are you doing? Who do you think you're fooling? I don't care if you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You're not a doctor. You shouldn't be doing what you're pretending to do. He calls them hypocrites. And we know that we, we've used that word before, you know, right actions, wrong motives. Here, there's a little nuance to it, and it has the idea of being an actor, a, a stage player, a counterfeit, not real. You know, normally, you don't hear a lot of personal illustrations here at AGC. We just we don't do a lot of that stuff. 
Generally, personal illustrations make the person telling the story look like the hero, right? So I'm, I'm going to ask for your indulgence. I had a, a, a lunch with a guy, oh boy, it's probably been four or five years ago. And he's an extremely wealthy man, probably hundreds of millions of dollars that he owned. And I'm talking to him. And I know that I'm just getting started in commercial real estate and I'm trying to build it. And so I'm using terms like institutional investors because I actually had talked to one once, you know? And so I'm using these terms like, you know, I'm at this level of business where I'm dealing with institutional investors and all this stuff. And he just stopped and he goes, how many institutional investors do you represent? And at that moment, it's like God opened my eyes, and I knew I was playing a game. I was trying to get this guy to be impressed with me so that he would do more business with me. I was being a hypocrite. I was being an actor. I was being counterfeit. I wasn't being real. I was pretending to be something more than I was. And I, I'll never forget that moment. God just opened my eyes and said, no. And you know what was so shocking to me was how subtle and how easy that slipped in. Because I look at myself and I think, well, you're a straight shooter. You're an honest guy. I, I, I work very hard at being honest and open and transparent and all that stuff. But here was this blind spot that was in my life. And this guy wasn't buying it. And that's, that's what he's saying to his disciples here. He says, this is ridiculous what you're doing. Now, I've got to give the disciples a little bit of a break, okay? These are the guys that were fishermen that got called by the Messiah to come with him in his inner circle and travel around and save the world, okay? There's some credibility there. You know, they know Jesus and all of this. And so they're getting so excited about what he's doing and what he's about that they're letting, they're, they're letting their enthusiasm get the best of them. They're getting it sort of, if you're a skier, if you get up over your skis a little bit too far. And they're out there and they're trying to fix everything that's going on with, with their brothers and all this other stuff. And he said, wait, 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 wait. Before you do anything, you have got to take the plank out of your eye. You have got to deal with your sin. And oh, by the way, all of your efforts aren't going to save anybody. I am. Now, I've called you to go do some things, and I'm going to use those things, but it's going to be me that opens the eyes of the lost. It's going to be me that does the work in the heart. And so you just need to slow your roll, and you need to take the plank out of your own eye. Does that resonate with anybody? I mean, we get so caught up in our busy lives and the things that we have to do, the places we have to go. We're so burdened for this person and that person, and, and I've got this. And 
all of our attention is out there. Are we taking the time to identify and to repent from our own personal sin? Or are we glossing it over, saying I'm doing the best that I can? Or I'm, I'm better than Parker, so, you know, I'm, I'm good. We, we, we do this comparative thing. If you haven't identified and repented from your sin, you're just playing. And Jesus doesn't play. And that's what he's saying to his disciples. This is not a game. This is God's plan that is so important that he sent his only son to execute it. Sin is not something to be toyed with or to ignore. There, this is not a one and done situation, however. You may be sitting there saying, well, there's no way that I could ever get to the place that I'm sinlessly perfect like Jesus, so I might as well not try. That, that's not what it's saying. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Satan wants to entice you. He wants to compromise you with acceptable sins. He wants to deceive you into acting in your own strength. He wants to destroy you. And so you, you may have come to a point in your life where you're at a spiritual high and you think, I've never been this encouraged and close to Jesus. And then you take your eyes off the ball. He never gives up. I don't care how long you have been a believer. I don't care how close you have been to Jesus. And I don't care how many sermons you've preached or classes you've taught or how many people you've shared the gospel with. He's not giving up. He's always coming back. And Jesus is saying we need to be vigilant about making sure that there isn't a new plank in our eye. And the majority of our time needs to be spent making sure that our lives are free of sin so that we can go out and we can do what it is that he has called us to do. So when considering identifying your sin and repenting from it, just remember the old slogan. I know it's old. Just do it. Jesus seriously wants us to live in the victory that he has for us. And he is saying, this is not a suggestion. Have Parents, have you ever used this? Tell your kids to do something. You go, I'm not suggesting that you do this. I want you to do, you need to do this or it's not going to go well for you. So Jesus is telling us to get the plank out of our own eye. And really, we, we could stop there. I mean, that, I, I'm as convicted as, as anybody about that. I mean, life is so busy. And there are so many things to pray for, so many people to pray for, so many things to go help with. And yet Jesus is saying here, you're running around town with a plank in your eye if you're not dealing with your sin. 
So the second responsibility is our responsibility to other believers, and that is the short part of the end of verse 5. He says, and then you will be able to see clearly and take the splinter out of your brother's eye. We do have a responsibility to each other. And uh, we're, we're not going to spend any time here on this this morning because Nate is going to wax eloquent on this next week. And uh, you'll want to bring your big notebooks and take lots of notes. Um, but we do have a responsibility to be clear in our eyes, to have the sin out of our eyes so that we can help. I don't know if you've ever tried to work on something small and intricate using glasses that are all foggy. It doesn't work. Or if you're of a certain age with no glasses at all and you can't see anything, it doesn't work. If you can't see clearly, it's hard to get anything done. But once we've done that and we do see clearly, we do have a responsibility <laughs> to each other. We do have a responsibility to help our brothers and to be able uh, to help them uh, take, by taking our personal responsibility uh, first and then helping them. So we've looked at our personal responsibility, our responsibility to other believers, and now in verse 6 we come to our responsibility to the lost. And this is, this is the verse that makes people scratch their head, right? And, and if you've read this and you've scratched your head about the dogs and the pigs and all of this, you're a good company. There are a lot of commentators and, and theologians through the years that have struggled with this as well. Um, there's one commentator that you've probably heard of, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that, that had this, this little section that I thought was so good that I actually put the whole thing on a slide so that we can go through it together. He says, as it relates to verse 6, Every attempt to impose the gospel by force, to run after other people and proselytize them, to use our own resources to arrange the salvation of other people is both futile and dangerous. It's futile because the swine do not recognize the pearls that are cast before them and dangerous because it pervades the word of forgiveness by causing those we, and he says fain would, but we desire to serve, it causes them to sin against that which is holy. Worse still, we shall only meet the, with the blind rage of hardened and darkened hearts, and that will be useless and harmful. Our easy trafficking in the word of cheap grace simply bores the world to disgust, so that in the end the world turns against those who try to force on it what it does not want. This may come as, as kind of new teaching to you. I know that in, in, in my history, um, the preaching of the word and, and evangelizing, and I even went through a program called Evangelism Explosion by D. James Kennedy back in the day, where you would go door to door through neighborhoods and knock on doors and, and ask them these questions and do all of this stuff. And, you know, Teaching the gospel is, is incredibly important, but what he's saying here is that when it is not welcomed, when people are antagonistic against it, we need to leave it in God's hands. We're trying to, if you were trying to build a movement, if you were trying to build a kingdom like Jesus is, it seems counterintuitive that you wouldn't go out with a bullhorn 
and, and shout it from the mountaintops and shake every tree and storm the dens of darkness and do everything that you could to build your kingdom. And we do need to go to the lost like Jesus did in Matthew 9, but when the audience is hostile, antagonistic, and aggressive in opposition of the gospel, it seems prayer, fasting, and loving people is, more, is a more effective tack to take. Do you feel the pressure with loved ones that are angry at God and antagonistic? I can't say that word. Antagonistic against the gospel. And you just have this, this burning passion that their eyes be opened and that they come to Christ before they die. And you just feel like, I got to get in the car and just go. Let's go back to our first point which is taking the plank out of our eye. Where this all starts is by dealing with our own sin in our life. And then trusting God and praying and fasting for the lost. There are some people that you don't have an opportunity to have a conversation with to convince them of the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's because of relationships or whatever. And if you force into that room, you're going to do more damage to the gospel than good. Say, but what do I do? Well, you know what? This is kind of the way it works. You pray and God answers. You know, if you pray for this lost one, God could raise up a coworker that came out of nowhere that this person that hates you kind of likes and they start talking to them about and you never know what's going to happen. Your responsibility is to take it to God in prayer and to pray for them and to trust that God wants that this is the important part. Trust that God wants that person saved more than you do. You say, well, I don't think that's... Trust me, it's true. God is not willing that any should perish, that all would come to repentance. That's his desire. That's his heart. And we can trust that he will do what he sees right. You see, everything in me says that sounds awfully Calvinistic, which means fatalistic, that, that we don't have any responsibility. And that's not true at all. We have been told to share the gospel in Mark 16 and Matthew 28 and a number of other places. What Jesus wants his disciples to know is that he is the one that does the saving. They don't need to force it. So when they're trying to force the gospel, and again, I come back to this vision that I have in my mind of his disciples in this unbridled enthusiasm running around the countryside trying to fix everybody because they're in the inner circle and they're probably arguing and screaming at people that are opposing them and and Jesus is just saying to them stop it just stop it don't cast your pearl before swine why would you do that 
again, it comes back to what is our responsibility. Our responsibility is to share the gospel with those who will hear. Our responsibility is to be ready to give a hope Give an answer to anybody asks a reason for the hope that lies within us. We, we have to be able to do that, but our responsibility is not to do what, can't, what we can't do. So I just want to encourage you, if you have a particularly hostile family member that just doesn't want to listen to anything regarding God, don't force it. God wants them to be saved more than you do. The first thing we need to do is to deal with our sin deal with our personal sin and pray for them and fast and then love them even when they don't deserve it and even when they don't want it and even when they mistreat you, love them. Be Jesus to them. Go back to the Beatitudes, the meek and lowly in spirit. That's what Jesus looks like. That's what Jesus did for me. You know, there's, there's an old hymn that has the line in the hymn that I can hear my voice among the scoffers. And then still he saved me. I did not deserve what he did. What he did in my life was a miracle. And you say, well, if you knew this family member, you would know... That's not going to happen. God is in the miracle business. How's your faith? When it comes to helping our brothers in Christ and seeing the lost come to faith, it seems like the majority of our efforts need to be spent getting the sin out of our lives and tuning our hearts closely to him. That should be the first thing that comes to mind when we think about somebody we want to see come to Christ. The very first thing we should do is go to prayer and deal with the sin that's in our lives. You know, when, you turn, when you're tuning an instrument and you're almost there but you're not quite there, like let's say you're tuning a guitar and there are two E strings, and the one E string is perfectly tuned, and the other one is just not quite there, let's say a quarter step under, that creates what's called dissonance. And what a dissonance is, is sound waves that are just fighting against each other in such a way that it is painful to listen to, and it destroys the artistry of the musical piece. When we are close to God, but we hold on to sin in our life, we are at dissonance with God. And we are destroying the artistry of the beautiful life that God has created for us. But when that dissonance is corrected and brought into harmony, it's said to be resolved. And when the dissonance is resolved, there can be perfect unison and perfect harmony. Don't settle for close. We need to root out all of the sin in our life so that we can be in perfect harmony with God, so that we can hear him clearly 
and so that we can know what it is that he has for us and we can enjoy what it is that he has for us. God created you uniquely for his glory and for your flourishing. That can only occur when we deal with our sin and tune our hearts to him. Then the beautiful artistry of the life he created us for can be realized. So the reflection question for this morning, what tuning does your life need to bring it into perfect harmony with Jesus? Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, he has revealed to us who he is and what his character is and what his heart is and what his thinking is. Are there any things in my life that need to change in order to me, for me to be in perfect harmony with him? Am I not quite there? Remember, close isn't good enough. Who are you burdened for this morning? I know you guys, and we have prayed a lot for a lot of people. The first step is dealing with your sin. And let's pray and let's ask that God would help us to do that. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.